0: Before last week's devastating wildfires, this is what it sounded like to be in West Maui. Families swimming at Canoe Beach in Hanakawai Park, tourists walking along Front Street in Lahaina Town, parents dropping off kids at Kamehameha Elementary School. This is what I saw the last time I was here, I come often to visit friends, and last year I brought my recorder with me. I was reporting about a controversial proposal to address beach erosion in a popular tourist area. But it seemed like that conflict was actually about something bigger, about what this place means and who is Maui for.
1: I've lived here all my life, my parents, my grandparents.
0: Back then, I talked to Paul Hanata a fisherman and freediver who cares deeply about the ocean. Months ago, I asked him about this question while sitting in a park.
1: Maui is for people that really respect the island uh, and respect each other. You know, there are a lot of people that come only for uh, money, for themselves. And uh, they really don't care about anything else, the environment or other people or... They have to learn something and, you know, I think it's our responsibility to teach them.
0: Maui is a place where tourism is big business and the cost of living is high. I spoke with Kepe Naiole, a native Hawaiian who is a cultural tour guide in West Maui, where he takes visitors out on canoes and tells them about the history of these places. He talked about tourism and the island's economy.
1: We wish we could have done it better. We wish there was a different way to do it. There are uh, Native Hawaiian scholars who have been, you know, telling us for, for hundreds of years already. I believe it was David Malo who, who, you know, said once that the, the big fish will come and will eat up all the little fish, and he was talking about, you know, same things the Native Americans went through, you know, being gobbled up by the big fish. So, you know, we still feel like we're you know, holding the jaws open of that big fish to try and not get gobbled.
0: This is what people were saying before the devastating fires that turned Lahaina Town into a wasteland. The nearby beaches, they've turned into relief sites, distributing medicine and food to people. Front Street, the elementary school, it's all gone.
2: So when I first arrived On Maui, we got a ride in with a resident, Hawaiian resident, and as we drove in to Lahaina, it was just complete devastation, burned up cars, and just the burn area went on for so long. Um, It's just a really huge area that's been destroyed. This
0: is my colleague, Zoanne Murphy. She and reporter Reese Thibault have been reporting from Lahaina getting a sense of the destruction caused by one of the worst natural disasters Hawaii has ever faced. So many people's lives are forever changed. Thousands of buildings are gone. More than 100 people are confirmed dead. And Reese says many more are still missing.
3: You can kind of recite those figures, but I think it's really hard to convey the, just the magnitude of the destruction. It's, it's just an entire town. You know, every block is imbued with so much history and uh, cultural significance, and it's now just forever changed and totally burnt to the ground.
0: Reese and Zoanne say that right now, even as people are figuring out how to survive this disaster, the questions that were being asked before have even more urgency. What is the future of this place? And does it include the locals who made this place what it was? From the newsroom of The Washington Post, this is Post Reports. I'm Elahei Izadi. It's Thursday, August 17th. Today, how the people of Maui are recovering from devastating wildfires and fighting for the future of their island. I mean, these fires leveled an entire town within a very short time period, right? Reese, can you tell us what we know so far at this point about what led to the fires and contributed to this happening?
3: The fire broke out at the tail end of a hurricane, and everyone talked about, you know, in the in the hours leading up to the fire, just how powerful those winds were. And I think that was sort of an X factor here. Um, They've had, you know, some spot fires, some brush fires on Maui before, but it was the winds that took that and really elevated it into the catastrophe that we've seen. There's been a lot of criticism of Hawaiian Electric, the utility company here, for its decision-making leading up to the disaster and during power was not shut off. And there are some residents who have said that the power lines should have been buried underground years ago so that something like this couldn't happen. But we'll mm-hmm. continue to learn more about that in the weeks and months to come.
0: Yeah, and we should say that the power company is already facing lawsuits. And it said it doesn't comment on pending litigation. And the focus right now is on supporting emergency response efforts But Reese and Zoanne, I think it would be helpful for us to just orient ourselves a little in the history of Lahaina, of this place, and some of the issues that residents have long been concerned about and how that all relates to how people on the ground are responding right now.
3: Lahaina has been described to us as the beating heart of Maui and, and even Hawaii. It was the capital of the Hawaiian Kingdom for a long time, the center of the whaling industry here and there's so much history. The front street that was burned down contained buildings that held incredibly important irreplaceable cultural artifacts these These documents and items that have been recovered and and preserved and used to promote a culture that has been fighting back against an onslaught of colonialism for hundreds of years. This is a place where the legacy of colonialism is just, it's visible every day and it's always on people's minds.
4: Hmm.
2: So when community leaders see, you know, the National Guard and FEMA and government agencies, there's like a very natural sense of vulnerability and suspicion because of that long history and so that there's some tension around that and questions about whether resources are going to get to the right places and who's going to have a say and where they go and who can access them. We have seen the presence of National Guard, and we have heard about people seeing FEMA search and rescue teams. We haven't seen those teams ourselves, but we've heard people talk about it. Um, And for the most part, what I've heard from residents is that they haven't seen enough support yet, and they're really waiting for much more support to come.
1: We're feeding people, providing people with toiletries, food, water, whatever we can do. We have a medical station right here.
2: We met a community leader named Willa Espiritu, who was talking about gathering supplies early on in the relief effort. And he really emphasized that the community members were relying on each other rather than relying on the government to get them what they needed.
1: This is how strong us people are from uh, Lahaina. That's how we come. We stay together, we can survive together. You know what I'm saying? We cannot wait for government. We cannot wait for county, state, whatevers. That's why we're here right now to support our community, do what we have to do for our community.
2: What was most striking to me, and I think that that first day, what really stayed with me was seeing how the community had pulled together to help each mm-hmm. other. And mm-hmm. going to this one distribution site where Local Hawaiians had, like, set up a spot where people could come and get water and food and just connect with each other after this tragedy. It was really powerful to see. And then all of these supplies were coming in by boat because it was so hard to get in by road. And so yeah. community members were, like, running out onto the beach and swimming out into the water and getting these pallets of drinking water and food and supplies and, like, bringing it back to the shore, and they had set up sort of assembly lines to hand it to, to pass these supplies along. And it was just, I think it was really telling because supplies had to be coming in by boat. So to see that happening was kind of amazing. And then just the, yeah. the like incredible sense of community was really powerful. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, right now, what are government authorities doing and what are locals saying about the government response?
3: Authorities are pleading for patients from residents as they continue their search. They say this is a difficult, unprecedented situation and, and that they're working as fast as they can.
4: The remains we're finding is through a fire that melted metal. We have to do rapid DNA to identify them. And so when you are asking us, and we we know we've got to get, we know we've got to go quick, but we've got to do it right.
3: The main burn area has still been heavily cordoned off by authorities. And they say that's because they're still searching for bodies in buildings and in cars. When you drive through Lahaina, you can see lines of burned out cars uh, that were stuck in traffic jams as they tried to escape. And you can see ruined footprints of buildings, apartment buildings and homes and businesses. And these are the places that authorities are, are searching through and uh, marking with an X on when they pass through and complete their search. And they're still doing that. They're not allowing people to access this area. And it's, it's also, hazardous environmentally, the the fumes are are pretty noxious um, and toxic, and that's been uh, that's been another challenge.
0: So there are many people who have been displaced by this disaster, and we should also say that there are people who are still looking for their loved ones, who don't know, you know, that they're still missing, right? Some people have been reunited, some people haven't. But where are displaced people living now? And what are the current needs? What is their situation?
3: So, thousands of homes burned down, and whole neighborhoods were erased, and the people who evacuated who live here on the island, a lot of them have family members, and now those folks are, are sleeping, you know, five to a room in their family members' homes and are sleeping in shelters. We've talked to people who are sleeping in tents in family members' yards. I think a lot of people are focused on the immediate right now and have been in the, in the early days after this disaster. But as their basic needs are, are, are slowly being met, they're starting to think about what Comes next, and where they'll go. A tent in the yard isn't a long-term solution. That's that's mm-hmm. kind of the next phase of this emergency response. Is really the the kind of medium and, and long-term crisis that will be kind of reckoning with the the housing shortage that was already a problem on Maui, and and now has just been exacerbated.
0: After the break, what happened to the Maui residents you heard from at the beginning of this episode? And I asked Reese and Zoanne about what the future of Lahaina could look like. We'll be right back.
4: This podcast is sponsored by Monarch Money. Are you saving to reach your financial goals?
0: I've been texting with some of the people I know on island. The cell service hasn't been great. Iokepa lives in Wailuku in central Maui. He said he and his family are safe. After the fires, I asked him what was on his mind. And he had this question that after all this devastation and tragedy, what could come in its wake in 20 years from now? He said this could also be an opportunity to help shape a new Maui a Maui where the priority is the health and welfare and the environment of our people. He said the tourism industry could be remade to be more mindful of Native Hawaiians. He said the world will be watching, and it'll be up to us to show them how our world is supposed to be. As for Paul the fisherman, he lives in Kula, where there were other fires. He and his family had to evacuate their houses. His neighbors' houses up the road burned down but he's not untouched by what happened in Lahaina. A friend of his died, and others are missing. I've been texting with him in the past several days, and he said, despite all this tragedy, he was inspired by all the people helping each other. And then he also said something about connection to this place. It reminded me of what he told me months ago when we sat together in that park.
1: When you come here, or even those that live here, They need to understand how everything works, how everything is connected to each other. The the land, the water, the ocean, the air. And until you understand that, and it's going to take a long time, you're going to struggle.
0: It seems to me, sitting so far away, that these fires have shown that everything on Maui really is connected. And so when I talked to Zoanne and Reese about what's going on right now after the fires, I wanted to know, were the people in Maui already thinking about the long term and how to rebuild in a way that honors connections?
2: People are certainly brainstorming different possibilities and ideas, and we've heard a few community leaders talk about Wanting to build tiny houses and wanting to make sure people maintain access to their plots, that those plots don't somehow get bought up or, you know, taken over by the government.
3: We spoke with one community leader named Archie Kalepa, who's been coordinating the kind of immediate disaster response in uh, in a Native Hawaiian neighborhood. I'm nine generations from Lahaina, so this place. Means a lot to me. You talked about the importance of bringing longtime Lahaina families to the table when discussions about rebuilding are happening.
1: I would hope that the federal government, uh, our, our county government, our state government can
3: begin to. Figure out ways to keep our Hawaiian people in Hawaiian lands. And we want to make sure that we're able to keep
1: Lahaina Lahaina and Lahaina strong. We don't want it to be Lahaina was. There's too much history that's embedded in all of us that live here that we have to keep
3: close that's the big thing on on people's minds is when officials talk about rebuilding there's a lot of distrust because of all of this history over what exactly that will mean and and what the rebuild will look like and who it will be for and one problem that residents are going to run into is a lot of these homes that burned down had been passed down through generations so the mortgages had been paid off and because of that They weren't required to have fire insurance. So there are going to be a lot of houses that burned and aren't covered by insurance. And these families uh, are already doing some math to say, you know, can we drain our savings to rebuild our house here or do we have to make a different decision?
0: So in hearing what you are describing about the concerns of as to whether people can return to this land or what they're going to do even with their property, will they be able to recoup anything, what does that mean for Lahaina of the future? Where will these people go?
3: I think this is going to be the most important long-term question because it's the people who've lived here and who can trace their family back generations here that have made Lahaina, Lahaina. I think— there are some big questions about if they leave, what will the town look like? And will it ever be able to approximate what it looked like before without the residents who have been there forever? So that is the the number one question going forward.
0: And Reese and Zoanne, since you all have been reporting on the ground, what else have you seen in the community and I'm wondering, are you already seeing signs of people starting to heal in the wake of this tragedy?
2: You know, we spent one evening with uh, Native Hawaiian community as they were coming together and distributing supplies. But we were seeing, people were seeing each other for the first time since the fire. And that moment of people hugging each other after not having seen each other was so powerful to see, just Tears in the eyes and relief at getting to see each other. Folks who had evacuated and were coming back in were reconnecting with their friends and family.
3: The sun set, and they served food, and they had some musicians come out and guitar players and singers, and they performed for people who were there.
0: I've never been,
3: and these are, you know, people who lost everything, or their family members lost everything, and their friends lost everything. And here they are on a Saturday night at an impromptu concert block party, and, you know, someone looked at me and said, this feels almost normal. And I think that is uh, that was really powerful to hear, because in the middle of all of this, uh, just the smallest moment of escape, I think, means means a lot.
0: Yeah, and connection.
2: Yeah, that connection. And in that same scene, I was looking around and just seeing people hold each other, people crying, people just really um, connecting after having been, you know, through this horrible tragedy.
0: Zoanne Murphy and Reese Thibault are reporters for The Post. That's it for Post Reports. This episode was produced by me and Emma Talkoff. It was mixed by Sean Carter. It was edited by Maggie Penman. We'll put a link in our show notes with information on how you can help West Maui residents. And you can go to WashingtonPost.com for the latest on the recovery efforts there. I'm Elahe Izadi. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post
4: love you.